Hello, uh, Klaus Moosmeier um, for the RegTech Impact podcast. I'm really happy that you enjoy us. Um, I want to start with some questions, but let me start with the question, who are you and what are you doing? Hey, I can. Hello. I uh, hope everything is well on, on your side. Big pleasure and honor to be in your podcast. Yeah, look, um, I'm, how would I describe myself? I'm a a compliance, ethics, risk and compliance uh, professional and hopefully also leader in the meantime in my leadership journey. I'm working now over 20 years uh, in the battlefield of, of ethics, risk and compliance, uh, starting as a lawyer, uh, then 18 years at Siemens, uh, also have been the chief compliance officer uh, at Siemens um, years, and then joined two years ago um, our Novartis, of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, as member of the executive committee and the chief ethics, risk and compliance officer. But maybe even more important, uh, I'm a husband and the father of three grown-up kids now in the meantime, German-Spanish uh, family, and uh, family is always first priority, of course. Uh, of course. I think in Corona times, family gets more important. Absolutely. We uh, remember what really uh, matters to us and what are the real values we should protect. Absolutely. And I think um, you have children. You mean uh, by the time digitalization uh, <laughs> is also important topic. <laughs> and that is something we are going to talk a little bit. Yeah, I mean, um, if we talk about um, drag tech, uh, what were your first contacts with the drag tech industry? Do you have any contacts with drag techs? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, first of all, I have to, to admit uh, I'm not a digital native. So I am a learner in this whole and uh, uh, in the years of my, uh, my professional career. Interesting enough, I mean, as a, as a young, younger lawyer, the first, uh, first link to RegTech or to technology in the field of, of, of regulatory rules, laws was... In the early 2000s, you know, when um, uh, we implemented at Siemens the Sarbanes-Oxley framework, and I was a member of the, of the task force there uh, as a lawyer, and this was the first, I mean, uh, really linked to which systems, IT systems, can we use? Uh, what about data quality, data analytics? How should this be Uh, implemented into the company IT system, especially for control of our funds. This was the first uh, the first uh, connect, I, I would say, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. It was uh, the first time you heard the word RegTech, although in 2000, or that's new? No, that's new for me. I mean, I must admit, as I mean, I'm now very much, of course, involved in these discussions, um, as you can imagine. But RegTech for me... I must admit it bluntly. It, it came up in the last uh, last couple of years uh, as a as a broader understanding. Um, so how I would understanding, but you correct me if I'm wrong, would be uh, putting the best what technology has to offer in the context of compliance and risk, and and specifically that's maybe the next step, uh, also involving the ethical and uh, cultural dimension. 
But you, t- you tell me if, if I'm completely on the wrong way here. <laughs> I mean, it's like um, define the, the, of defining of corruption is difficult. Uh, yeah. It's the same like RegTech. I mean, uh, at RegTech Impact, we define RegTech like um, RegTech describes the use of modern computer-based digital technologies to automate is one point, to simplify second, and improve regulatory governance, fraud, compliance, anti-corruption, ethical and risk tasks. And this is a very holistic um, approach. Um, if we talk about RegTech for almost five years, everybody ta- talks about FinTech. And mm-hmm. RegTech mm-hmm. is a subject yeah. of, of FinTech. Yeah. But in our definition, it's more like you can do it on FinTech area like um, maybe you heard about MR risk, some, for example, yeah. and all the things. But in this case, and this is also one of my aim or vision of uh, RegTech Impact, um, to do not only fintech stuff, to do more in pharma, do in healthcare, where we can do really RegTech, um, how you can say, things like computer-based digital technologies to improve and to simplify and automate. And that is a really another view i think and that is uh, where we want to talk because normally if i talk with regtech it's always fintech and that is not the best way i think what's your opinion about that i mean no absolutely it's an evolution and i fully agree it started with fintech and this is where we where we know it uh, but as the whole uh, i mean the whole system is involving the regulatory system is involving on the public side And then also on the private side. I mean, again, Erkan, I mean, now during COVID-19, this is a no-brainer. And the public side has to accelerate the digital journey on the regulatory side. I mean, just for an example, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, during lockdown times, uh, authorities can't do inspections on the manufacturing side anymore for pharmaceutical companies. So just imagine now, The, the public inspection has to be done digital to fulfill the regulatory requirements. That's a completely new uh, new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And also, you can do a lot of things not the right way. I mean, you have to save. Um, for example, if you um, if you're checking your supplier by data, for yep. example, and you have to get the information and you have to clarify that and clarifying because on data you can do a lot of things. You can make fraud, for example, but you have to check that. And um, for example, uh, the technology is very interesting, but nobody used it. For example, you can check. Uh, um, for example, it's just an example. It's not data protection. Um, you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, wire photos, for example, you can yeah. check if the person is living there. For example, in um, he's telling you he is living in this area, but you can check with photos or you check by another workflows. And that is something we think we should think about. Absolutely, I think. That yeah, is- you're absolutely right. And. We are applying this uh, again uh, strictly, of course, in the in the for the rules of data privacy, uh, the legal rules, and where we can discuss the ethical challenges uh, in a second. But uh, just imagine a, a market like China, where we have a lot of interactions, uh, transactions, the public sector, uh, education programs, which uh, are important uh, in the pharmaceutical world for the peer-to-peer education for the doctors. But of course, you have to document them the right way. 
And we're also using photos, as you said, as an evidence for this. And we can see that you can also uh, try to fake the photos and that you uh, fake meetings and try to uh, uh, start a fraud scheme. And that's a very interesting um, topic, especially now, and the question how you can develop your monitoring, your audit uh, skills and functions to, to keep up with this. That's um that's top of our minds, I would say. I, can, yeah. I, I think we are really deeply in the matter of technology, but we can go one step uh, back. Um, as you establish companies, um, what should RegTechs learn or consider working better with established companies or even to win them as customers? Because uh, on the one hand, RegTechs have to do two things. They have to do a pitch at uh, established companies And the other hand, they have to pitch at the regulatories, for example, BaFin, you can say that here in Germany, for example. And um, how we can help them to do better working with established companies? Yeah. Is there a way? Yeah. I think it's a learning journey, to be honest. Um, and one one comment on this, on this learning journey is... Uh, the ideal situation for us with the RegTech companies is that they have, uh, they see both. First of all, they keep the, the startup kind of attitude to think outside the box because this is what we need as established companies. Someone who thinks outside the box and has the external perspective. On the other hand, the second point, Erkan, is really understand our context in which we are working uh, from a technolo technology landscape, landscape point of view. We often see companies approaching us and they want to sell us a maybe wonderful system uh, uh, for ethics risk and compliance, but they just have no idea about our IT landscape, about the context we are working. And then, you know, it does not simply fit together yeah, uh, because we can only implement given the situation of our IT landscape and our technology roadmap. And if this is not common understanding, the learning, a joint learning, it simply makes makes no sense. We can't buy an isolated solution which is not fitting to our system. But keep mm -hmm. the startup mindset when it comes to innovation out of the box. I mean, uh, can I say um, API technology is very important. I mean, uh, you know, APIs to, um, that you can uh, not isolate or you can integrate into the IT landscape. That is a very important uh, thing on RegTex, and everybody used that. I mean, um, keeping up with startup attitude, it's very important. But on the other hand, uh, we're talking about business, and you have to make money of that. And that is something um, what I can say to invest in RegTex is very expensive. As I told you, you have to do two, you have got two customers. One is the regulator. On the other hand, your customer. And that is something um, I try to figure out how we can help them. But this is a good point. Keep up startup and really knowing, really knowing what you do. And that makes talk with the people, I think, before you're doing that. I mean, yeah. um, one of the failure for startups is they do something which the market don't need. Absolutely. The listening. I mean, we all listen. We are not listening enough, uh, also as leaders sometimes. So that's an important topic. And and listening is, is, is for Rectex, I think, very important because, look, we are big companies. We are hilariously complex, of course. And mm -hmm. you have to understand this. Uh, and that's yeah. um, 
And go we to the another question. What I want to know: any rec recommendation to how established companies and rectors can be actively engaged in fighting, for example, against corruption? I mean, uh, we have an example: corruption. And how we can do that? I mean, on the one hand, we have startups. They want to do something against corruption. Do you have something like a sandbox? Um, by meaning sandbox is um, you don't think about the technology landscape. You just try it in a safety environment. That's yeah. something. Yeah. The sandbox exercise gets increasing traction, I would say, in companies and also on international level. Uh, I'm also engaged at business at OECD as a, as a member of the executive board there. We are just doing, uh, kind of as we speak, a sandbox exercise together with the OECD on data privacy and, and data and digital. Uh, and we also involved there. Our chief data privacy officer is also part of this exercise. Uh, and we're also, to a certain extent, trying the sandbox uh, approach uh, in, in companies. So joint efforts uh, are key. And there are platforms. Uh, well, I give, want to give you one example where we made a, a, a request for public-private partnership. Uh, we have the, the B20 process at the moment in Saudi Arabia. That's the mirror of the G20 process. I'm of the co-chairs for the Compliance Integrity Task Force. And One of our big recommendations is to use emerging technology in the fight against corruption and have a public-private partnership for joint sandbox processes. And for example, develop a global value chain passport, digital passport for companies to have beneficial ownership transparency uh, across the globe if you come to supply chain to fight corruption. So we made a really, a really a pledge, doing a pledge to G20 leaders to start this kind of public-private partnership in the sandbox area, and we need direct companies to join this. Absolutely. It's a good idea, sandboxes, because you need a playing field, and I yeah. think without having too much damage. On the other hand, um, it should be not only staying on the sandbox, it should be go in go live version, but it's the first step, I would say. Yeah. I recommend that. Yeah. Um, if you go one question, what do you think established companies do better in companies' tasks than five years ago? I mean, we took too much about um, startups, but still look to the companies, what what they do better in compliance than five years ago. Yeah, I would say we are in the journey from just uh, uh, putting data together, structured data together with this, as you know, as an expert, you need structured data uh, before you, you start analyzing. The companies have put together a huge amount of data and uh The first focus in the last five years, I would say, was more on the forensic detection side. We are now seeing the, the big benefit to uh, go to uh, using the data for reporting mechanisms and for predictive analytics. That's the big thing, I believe. We're not there yet, definitely not. But the one thing is detection and the one thing is prediction and and don't underestimate this for huge companies we are looking for assurance models and one important topic for assurance is how do you report real-time data to the governing governing bodies like executive committee the board and this is exactly the journey we are in from just putting together big data and using them for detection to come to a reporting mechanisms and starting 
about predictive analytics, which is in the early in the early days. But on reporting, I would say we are we are much better than than five years ago. I have a global dashboard uh, I can use where I get uh, data overviews from the whole organization. I, I I didn't have this five years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, that means uh, to sum it up, you have got. Um, predictive analytics and detecting and reporting. And if we talk about reporting, you mean also internal reporting, also external reporting, both sides. Both, yeah, because we are, and if you, as you raised topic of the pharmaceutical industry, we are one of the regulated, therefore uh, important uh, industries which have to report a lot. I mean, we have to report under various laws around the globe about our transfer of value, What we pay, for example, to healthcare practitioners for conferences, for, for speaker programs, for peer-to-peer -peer education, being part of our clinical trials, and so on and so forth. And uh, this is external reporting, transparency laws, but also mm -hmm. the internal reporting uh, for our assurance needs we have in companies. Well, perfect. But what is your view on the fast-changing technology landscape into this world? I mean, technology changes, and what is your opinion about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a big clash, I would say, of the potential we see, and which is maybe already working, uh, especially if you see what's all possible under COVID-19 circumstances now. and. So the opportunities and also the risks. I mean, if you think about um, the data privacy concept we have, is this the future of really individual consent? Is this still possible in this fast-changing world? Or do we need a different approach, especially if we come to, a, to data which benefits research and development uh, in health, patient data, which is a big, big, of course, a topic Uh, patient data has to be protected and used only for specific purposes. But it's it's not for marketing, it's for research and development. So what kind of, of consent regime will we find in these days? And ethical dilemmas, how we how we use uh, RegTech and for, for, for data analytics and data mining. I mean, there are companies out, you know, where have a high profile, are highly criticized sometimes, but also highly effective if it comes to bring data sources together. So I believe this this ethical um, questions, data privacy questions, they will they will increase. And we are working on this also. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's like the example, um, you know, Google Maps, for example, with the data protection, is, uh, you, you, you pay them with your data, but everybody use that. Yep. And that is something, as uh, a good example, I think, that you are on the one hand on data protection, On the other hand, you the use of that. Uh, that is something which we're thinking um, is an important part. By the way, I think the government are going to do more in ethical things, like doing standards for ethical. For example, I know in AI area, there's a report about standards in ethical. But uh, I think <laughs> this is a topic ethical for for your new podcast. Absolutely, new <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but uh, still on technology, what are the three major upcoming trends for you in context of risk, ethics, and compliance? Yeah, I would say... Um, The first trend 
is getting out of the silos if it comes to data and digital. So the trend, the first trend, I would say, is that me for the first time now that I really see this in practice, the trend is working across all stakeholder groups and ethics, risk, and compliance, compliance and jointly define key metrics which are needed. Normally, you know, in the past, uh, the functions have done this in their silos and used the data in their silos. But the first trend is this kind of holistic across different functions working uh, on, on data and digital. Uh, the second one um, is an increased use of, of analytics. Um, so data analytics, not only to put data together for nice dashboards and get data visualized in a hopefully user-friendly way, but the analytics which show the user, look, this is the trend, this is the red flag, proactively you have to watch out. And this is, of course, linked to this, this user-centric, user-friendly uh, movement as a second trend we, uh, we, we need to have. And then the third one is the broad, what we see in the company. And, you know, data and digital is one of our key strategic priorities uh, at Novartis because we see this as a third point, as a cultural trend. It's not only technology and user-friendliness, it's the question, the cultural trend with digitalization. So upscaling, including myself, uh, the associates to be able to use this and to drive this and to understand this on a day-to-day basis. So again, it's it's the three things is uh, working across silos, going to analytics user-friendly, and third one, culturally empower the organization to make use of it. Yeah, these are the three things I, I see there at the moment. I think um, culture is a, how would you define culture? I mean, data privacy and culture is a difficult question. I mean, can you try to define the culture? I mean, it's, it's maybe. Two elements, maybe. The one is, I mean, the the, the millennials we have in the companies of, in the company, they are, and they do it as it said, as digital natives, uh, you don't have to push them. There, the cultural topic is more on the topic you you raised that we discussed a minute ago about where are the limits, the ethics. What should we not do? Where are the red lines, which is a, for a pharmaceutical company, uh, which deals with humans, of course, of, of, of great importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the culture, you know, in the company is also to get the fear out of the others who are not digital natives, that they really lose the fear to work with data and digital to embrace this. Also, give you an example on manufacturing sites uh, and elsewhere. So where people are not used to do this in a holistic way. So it's it's depending on, on your focus group, the culture. It's getting the fear out. On the other hand, for the ones who are very advanced, also to show them the ethical limits, we, we need to respect as a company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Quite, quite a difficult it's, topic, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know, I know, and it's it's like a collective programming of the mind. I would say, I mean, that it's uh, something which what you say. Also, I mean, you know, you know the limits, the red flags, um, and the person, or it's more the collective programming of the mindset. I think Is that what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a 
but again, the collective problem of the mindset, there are different groups you have to mm-hmm. address. And not yes. everyone is a digital native. And there are different no. needs uh, on the education. And we see this in the company. So when we, uh, as this is one of our priorities, and we have a chief digital officer in the executive committee with Bertrand Botzen, a guy who's really, really driving this full focus on the digital journey. But you have different user groups. And you need to balance this this cultural change depending on the needs and on the on the progress they made in the digital mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a good question but uh, let me think about risk management and compliance function i think we are able to transform that in the digital age uh, all parties of the global ecosystems i mean public and private should work together and who i think globally can is are taking the lead in this who can get the lead yeah it's a i would say it's a bumpy journey to be honest because um already the the agreement that the fight against corruption needs to be a joint one between public and private sector is still uh, uh, not under debate but it still uh, needs uh, <laughs> convincing all involved parties i mean we are much better to be honest than maybe 10 years ago in the meantime we have joint platforms for the public and private sector The B20, uh, G20 process is one. The OECD is another. United Nations has certain platforms. Also um, on uh, money laundering, there are uh, joint working groups between public and private sector. And of course, you know, this money laundering, um, transparency, topics are, are key. But this is still, um, uh, it's still something we always have to have to drive. And then, and this is what we try to do this year, the P20 process in Saudi Arabia is to say we need a lighthouse project, private-public partnership on at least one or two digital projects to uh, to fight against corruption. Because only if you have a living example, the people will buy in. And this global value chain passport, which we, deliver, which we developed at, at, this, at, at OECD, that we say a company has a digital passport. And there's the company information in there. And if you are a supplier, maybe if you use blockchain technology, you can use the, the passport to avoid a, a duplicated due diligence because it was already done by another company, for example. Mm-hmm. And then this can be used for public tenders, to be admitted to public tenders, that you know, for example, uh, the ownership of the company uh, is, the beneficial ownership is in the digital passport. And then the public tender can accept company as a bidder with integrity, a transparent bidder. But there you need you need a full collaboration between the public and private sector. And the call is out, Erkan, but uh, we are not there yet. Yes, I, I think we have still work and one step behind. I mean, it's good that we do our step forwards, but still going uh, more steps in the future, I think. And um, how can Novartis help to build a bridge between digital technology and compliance frameworks, especially for RegTech startups? Can Novartis help for RegTabs? Is there Yeah, idea what is or? help? I mean, we are, we are quite open to share publicly our learnings and lessons uh, on, on the journey. I mean, we are, uh, we are trying to really embrace this for our holistic ethics, risk, and compliance approach. And we have one also publicly known example. We have teamed up with other uh, pharmaceutical companies. Bayer is one of them. 
who develop a joint a blockchain approach uh, for supplier due diligence in our part of our third party risk management. And we try to engage other pharmaceutical companies uh, to showcase that if we uh, want to level the playing field, we need, of course, respecting the antitrust laws to work together. Uh, and blockchain could be not the only technology, but could be a way to get this. We work there together, Arkan, with also the universities. Uh, we had students in the project um, to develop this. So we tried really to bring academia and business together on this, and only in, as an example, on this blockchain supplier due diligence approach. And that's one of the topics we uh, we want to try out and hope to get more traction uh, from the public side and by other pharmaceutical companies. I understand. But I think you do something um, and you are open-minded for good ideas. Can I sum it up? Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, to be very honest, I mean, on a daily basis, we get offers from companies to support us also commercial offers and 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 we we see this huge interest of companies to support us there but also ask them for understanding we we have also as a even as a big company limited abilities now take every everyone on board we have to prioritize on this so so I, but i see the huge appetite um not only in our company i see this across the industry for this and and therefore this when you started the podcast, this issue, what what should RegTech companies know? This dialogue is, is, is so important that we understand each other. I think in the beginning you told um, the digital mind and knowing really well the IT framework you told us, I mean, or the topics. That yeah. was two things that, that RegTech should um, think about. Uh, we talk about uh, RegTech, but we talk also about compliance and Is compliance job still attractive? I mean, especially because of economic consequence of the Corona crisis. What do you think about the the future of compliance jobs? Because yeah, um, hmm. yeah. I mean, let's face the reality: there will be budget constraints for all functions in in companies who are affected by the crisis, and nearly everyone is affected by the crisis to one way or the other way. So there will be, of course, constraints. I see this, and I always say this quite loudly uh, at all conferences I am, I see this more as an opportunity if the compliance colleagues are courageous. And that means you have to leave your, you have to go out to your, from this anti-corruption corner in the company and to be willing to take on broader responsibilities for ethics, risk management and compliance. Uh, I believe there's a big need for a holistic assurance approach in companies, especially under COVID. Leaner setup, but joint, bringing the risk topics together with compliance. And there, I believe the compliance officers, given their uh, proven track record in, in risk management, they are often good communicators. Uh, they can take a lead there, but they have to be courageous to get out of their anti-corruption corner as anti-corruption specialists. They have to have a broader mindset as uh, risk leaders and understanding data and digital and direct environment. That's needed for the journey. Um, can I tell or sum it up like um, compliance experts should be more compliance leaders? I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the journey. I mean, the compliance officer, when I started uh, in compliance many years ago, this compliance officer was a police officer basically sitting in the company. And it was really he or she an expert. And we are in a good way to develop the compliance function. Uh, someone who is partnering with the business, having the necessary independence, of course, but partnering, understand the business. Uh, we uh, we get many colleagues from the business in our ethics, risk, and compliance function, by the way. We have, by the way, also superb IT colleagues in the compliance organization. Um, and, and you need this kind of diverse education and background in, in ethics, risk, and compliance. Uh, I myself, I'm a lawyer, but I don't want to have only lawyers in the compliance organization. I want to have people from sales, from the IT department, from procurement, from finance, uh, to, to have a holistic view, right? And this is this leadership journey and development journey from pure end corruption to compliance to an ethics, risk, and compliance setup. It means uh, for people who want, wanted to do a good job in compliance in the future, I mean, uh, which professional skills will become increasingly important for risk managers or compliance managers? Um, what would you say? What do you recommend for the people who are going to want to work in this area? Yeah. I mean, we can build on what we discussed so far. And first of all, I think you will agree there is... Everyone needs to be open as a learner of the data and discipline. We, we, this is absolutely necessary. And I myself, I'm a learner in this because I repeat this, I'm not a digital native. So this is absolutely, absolutely key. And then I don't care about the professional background. For me, the skills are important and the intrinsic, the intrinsic motivation uh, for ethics, risk and compliance. Uh, I... I believe we need people who are willing to develop uh, constant learners also in digital. Therefore, we also we offer at Novartis, we have an own Ethics, Risk and Compliance Academy where we offer not only professional skills, also soft skills, uh, communication and our cultural journey. So, and then this intrinsic motivation, you know, to do uh, things differently and engage in these difficult, often dilemma situations of Ethics, Risk and Compliance. So openness, data and digital interest, at least, intrinsic motivation to, to work in ethics, risk and compliance are much more important than having a, a law degree or to be an accountant or a controller. This can be, but it's not, not a precondition. Cool. I think almost to the end, um, one point, ethical dilemma. We wanted to think, uh, talk some thoughts about your ethical dilemma in according to Rectech situation. I mean, this is one topic we should think about or talk about. Yeah. And there are a lot. I mean, uh, it starts, of course, with the, uh, the question you raised where you said we could end a known podcast about it. If you employ more and more artificial intelligence, where are the ethical boundaries if you use them? Who is at the end the decision maker in an ethical dilemma? Is this the algorithm or is this still a, a human brain? What about, um, that is a big topic, was a big topic for our new code of ethics, uh, which is based on behavioral science. Our own internal biases we have are often uh, mirrored in artificial intelligence, because the people who programmed the algorithm brought their own biases 
into the algorithm. So, for example, you notice, for example, uh, if you have a recruiting tool in place, uh, screening all the applications based on algorithms, what came out in many companies was that the algorithm preferred white male candidates, not diverse candidates. Hmm. How does this come? Ah, this comes because the people programmed this brought their own biases into the algorithm and and was duplicated. So these are these these are ethical dilemmas we definitely we, we definitely have. And we have them in the pharmaceutical industry as we are dealing with patients, uh, of course, all the time. I think this affects also the culture. And that is something if you have a recruiting by screening and only white colors, I say, um, this could be changing or be cultural thing. I mean, affecting the culture also, I think. I mean, it's like um, a progress. And that is something I think ethical dilemma is very important for the companies. Absolutely. More. Absolutely. And we try to bring now together with our human resources organization these topics already in the recruitment process we call this hiring with integrity because we believe we need to bring these ethical dilemmas already in the recruitment process for the recruiters and for the candidates that is really good i mean um we are almost in the end um one question what would you do if you were not working in the compliance <laughs> industry <laughs> i'm deeply interested in history but as a younger uh I mean, I was after after school. I was a couple of years in the army. Uh, left the army then uh, as a young army officer, uh, and then I was the question: What should I study? And I I want to study history because I'm deeply interested in history. But you know, in history, uh, you mainly are uh, you know difficult to obtain your goal to become a professor at university. That's difficult, and then you end up maybe doing something completely different. And I law because I thought law is. Uh, is Gives you a lot of opportunities, um, and uh, I uh, I was happy to do so. And if I'm looking back, I still believe it's a great, uh, very broad opening uh, study. But my really my personal interest is deeply in uh, in history also. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you have the chance to have to meet somebody, who would you like to have a drink with? I mean, or tea or coffee or anything else. Yeah. In this case, maybe a vodka because it would be uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, I always, I mean, I would be so interested to understand his personal dilemma when he uh, made a transition from the old Soviet Union uh, uh, with the Glasnost and Perestroika, which also, of course, brought the German unification as one of the results, but also brought a lot of dilemmas and topics because. Uh, everything was changed. And I, I would be so interested to know about his personal dilemmas, the pressure he had about the ethical dilemmas, about the risks, also the personal risks uh, Mikhail Gorbachev had. I believe he is one of the most, I mean, bravest people potentially in history because he did something, and I, I think he believed in it, which changed the whole history. And, and I would be hugely interested about how did he feel about it in his dark moments and in the lonely nights? Yeah, this would be would be Mr. Gorbachev for me. Yeah, really, really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, the dilemma. Still talking about dilemmas. That's really interesting. Uh, Klaus, thank you very much for your really interesting topics. Um, I would say 
very, very, very interesting because I go with you, hopefully, to the next step, doing more in RegTax. I hope so. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely a, a joint effort. I really enjoyed the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for all your efforts, Erkan, and um, hope the, 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 the people who listen to it will find it interesting as well. I hope so. Thank you. Stay well. Thank you. Yeah.